Thank you for downloading Business Matters from the BBC World Service, broadcast five days a week at 8am Singapore time and 8pm New York time. Hello, I'm Mark Whitaker, and this is Business Matters on the BBC World Service. On today's programme, Going for Gold, how the process for fixing the price of the world's favourite precious metal may need fixing itself. The institutions that participate in the process also manage it at the top end as well. And I think you want a separation of responsibilities. And I think that the gold fix doesn't pass scrutiny in these areas. Uh, And I think there's some remedial work required. Also on the programme, going to pot. How Washington State is following Colorado's lead and legalising marijuana, and not just medicinally. And going for a clean-up, how God's bank is being overhauled to make it wholly transparent and accountable. That's Business Matters here on the BBC, but first, the latest BBC News. BBC News with Marion Marshall. Preliminary results in Afghanistan's presidential runoff show the former finance minister Ashraf Ghani is ahead of his main rival, Abdullah Abdullah. Mr Ghani has 56% of the votes that have been counted so far. Karen Allen reports from Kabul. Three months after Afghanistan began the complex process of electing a successor to President Hamid Karzai, the provisional results were announced. They put Dr Ashraf Ghani in the lead by more than a million votes, with more than 7 million ballots counted out of a turnout of more than 8 million. In the first round, Dr Ghani had trailed behind his rival, Dr Abdullah, but his fortunes appear to have been reversed when the country went to the polls once again in June. Amid widespread allegations of fraud, the Independent Election Commission has announced that 7,000 polling stations will now be audited before the final result is announced in two weeks' time. Sources in the Vatican say the Roman Catholic Church will announce a radical reform of its bank, which has been much tainted by scandals. The move will be formally announced on Wednesday. Pope Francis had ordered a thorough review of the bank soon after coming into office. Tony Bonsignore has more. Formerly known as the Institute for Works of Religion, the Vatican Bank has for decades played a key role in managing the financial affairs of the Catholic Church. But a string of scandals has tarnished both its reputation and that of the broader church, and Pope Francis has made reform of the bank one of his priorities. As a result, the Catholic Church is this week expected to announce that the bank will be radically slimmed down, losing its controversial asset management division. Critics say the temptations involved in managing the church's assets have been a key reason for its recent woes. Israel has carried out more airstrikes against the Gaza Strip after the militant Palestinian group Hamas fired dozens of rockets into southern Israel. At the height of the attack, more than 40 landed there in just one hour. The attack came as six Hamas members were being buried in the Gaza Strip. The militants say they were killed in an Israeli airstrike. Israel has denied this. Police in Brazil have arrested the director of a World Cup hospitality company as part of an investigation into illegal ticket sales. Ray Whelan works for a partner company of football's governing body, FIFA. Wira Davis reports. The man identified as Ray Whelan was arrested at Rio de Janeiro's top hotel, the Copacabana Palace, after prosecutors had earlier detained several members of a ticket-racketing gang. The gang's thought to have been operating for the last four World Cups, obtaining and selling on as many as 1,000 tickets per match. Prosecutors said they could have made as much as $90 million per tournament. 
For several days, Brazilian police had insisted someone from close to or inside the governing body of world football must have been involved in the operation because of the huge number of VIP and hospitality tickets involved. World news from the BBC. Church officials in the Central African Republic say Muslim fighters have attacked a church compound in the town of Bambari, in which thousands of people, mainly Christians, had taken refuge. One report speaks of many people having been killed, another of one death and of many serious injuries. The French defence minister, who's visiting the country, is scheduled to travel to Bambari on Tuesday. Japan has issued emergency warnings for its southern islands, where Typhoon Naguri, one of the most powerful to hit the country in years, is expected to make landfall early on Tuesday. The country's meteorological agency said the islands near Okinawa could be hit by heavy rain, 14-metre waves and winds gusting at speeds of more than 200 kilometres an hour. It urged people to seek shelter in community centres. American scientists have identified the biggest bird ever to have flown from fossilised remains found more than 30 years ago. The giant seabird had a wingspan of more than six metres, nearly twice the size of an albatross, the largest living bird. Here's Rebecca Morell. This bird would have looked like a colossal seagull. Despite its scale, the giant, called Pelagornis sandesi, would have been an elegant glider. With its long, slender wings and light, hollow bones, it could have soared for great distances over the ocean. Computer models show that taking off, though, was probably a less graceful affair. Flapping its wings wouldn't have done the trick. Instead, scientists think the bird had to run downhill and hope to catch a gust of air. A painting by the French artist Henri Matisse, stolen more than a decade ago in Caracas, has been handed back to Venezuela. The painting, Odalisque in Red Pants, was recovered in Miami Beach in an undercover operation two years ago. An American and a Mexican citizen were both arrested and convicted of theft. BBC News. Hello and welcome to Business Matters. I'm Mark Whitaker, And on the programme today, is there a gold standard when it comes to fixing the price of gold? Or is it a system which needs fixing itself? The Vatican Bank gets a makeover on holy orders. Marijuana dealers are now welcome in America's Pacific Northwest, and it doesn't have to be for medicinal use only. Now they're going to be setting up shop in the state of Washington to be able to sell it for those who just want to get high. My guests on the programme today are in Toronto, Ralph Silver from the Silver Research Network, and here in London, Jeremy Gordon from China Business Services. And we'll be hearing from Jeremy and Ralph in a moment or two. But first, in all probability, it was all originally forged not here on Earth, but in the super white heat of a supernova, or in a collision between neutron stars before the world was even born. It's a transition metal with the atomic number 79. Throughout history, it's been the object of human desire, the element which was the dream of alchemy and the downfall of King Midas. Indestructible, yes, but can you always believe in gold? More specifically, in the price of gold. Only 174,100 tonnes of gold, that's 5.6 billion troy ounces, have ever been extracted from the Earth's surface in the whole of recorded history. Its value is set every day, or twice every day, under a system called the London Gold Fix. 
but the heavenly metal is subject to earthly forces and the system is under attack. Earlier this year, Barclays Bank was fined $45 million by British regulators after a former trader at the bank admitted trying to manipulate the price of gold. Now, the World Gold Council is saying it's time to reform the way in which the price of gold is fixed. Fergal O'Connor from St John University in York explains the rationale for change. Currently, fixing can take a number of minutes and that takes time for information to reach the markets. But individuals involved in the fixing have that information. So it creates an imbalance. It gives people better information who are involved in the fixing. This means that traders in the banks involved in the fixing could simultaneously buy or sell gold in New York, uh, knowing where the price direction is moving. And there's been one very good research paper looking at that, um, describing it as a leaky fixing. Ross Norman is the chief executive of Sharps Pixley. His company used to sit on the committee which decides the price of gold, but its commercial role is in selling gold, either coins or gold bars, to the public. There are two ways of looking at the gold price. One is during the working day. There's an OTC market over the counter, if you like, between bank and bank, and that's the price you'll see flashing on the screens, and that is a counterpart-to-counterpart price. But twice a day that that trading stops to derive a benchmark figure at 10.30am London time and 3pm London time. So that spans London and Asia and London and New York. And that's to derive a figure which is objective as opposed to the spot price, which is subjective. Right, so who, who decides what the price is then at 10.30 in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Well, that's a process called the London Gold Fix. And the kind of people that will deal on that uh, platform are efficient institutions, like central banks. You know, if they want to buy some gold, why did you choose that bank or that bank? They choose the fix because it's a moment in time where there's a lot of liquidity, because all the traders gather at those moments in time, if you like, metaphorically speaking. It's called deep liquidity. uh, And they want to buy at that moment in time. And there's a process that goes through rather like an auction to derive a fair price twice a day. Is it the same institutions every time? Yes, it is, but the chairmanship rotates within those five. Right, and what, what are those five? Well, typically there's SG, um, HSBC, Scotiabank and Barclays. Deutsche Bank have stepped down. Why those five? History, really. Um, and this, this, this fix goes back for over 119 years. Actually, Sharks Pixie was one of the original fixing members way, way back. Um, so it's a prestigious thing. It's not a money-making thing, uh, Mark. It's, uh, it's a service, if you like, to the industry to try to derive a benchmark. And it's evolved over time. Some would say it's been slow to evolve. Right. So what are the complaints about this? I mean, 10.30 and 3 o'clock every day, this is, this is fixed by these. And it has been for, for a long, long time. Correct. Why, why are suddenly people getting agitated about this? Well, the issue really relates to, first of all, it's an open process, so it's like an auction. Um, The interesting thing about the auction process is you can put an order in yourself um, to buy or sell on the gold fix, provided you're a bona fide institution, like a refiner or a jewellery group. During the fixing process, you can change your order, buy uh, buy more, sell, or cancel. So the, the key point about it is, and there's a misunderstanding here, do these institutions have privileged information that they can usefully use for themselves? The short answer is no, because you have the right, unlike an eBay fix, like an eBay auction, you can cancel at any moment during that process. I think the problem people have is with the openness and transparency of the process in terms of the numbers generated. And there's a reason for that, which is that if you personally were looking to buy gold, well, you may not be dealing with HSBC, but you'll be dealing with a counterpart that is, and you may be two or three tiers down. And within that whole process, you've got lots of buyers and sellers, and those trades are being netted off. And only the net amounts are being pushed up to the top of this big pyramid. Mm -hmm. And so the fix goes on and the auction hammer comes down on a very small amount. 
trying to work out all of those institutions within that is like it's like trying to reconstitute a cake after you baked it. It's kind of hard. It can be done, but it's very complex. It's called a fix, though. Um, can it be fixed? <laughs> yes, it can be. And I think that, to my mind, it, it is open to scrutiny, and it should be, um, in two areas. One is, if you like, the, a more transparent way during the fixing process. You know, it's not good enough to be good. You've got to seem to be good in the current environment. So perhaps a real-time updating of the bids and offers going on, because there are parallel markets related to gold going on at the same time. Uh, and I think that's essential. The other area relates to governance. And the institutions that participate in the process also manage it at the top end as well. And I think you want a separation of responsibilities. And I think that's something which isn't aired an awful lot, but I would like to see. There's something called the IOSCO principles. It sounds fancy. Basically, they set the guidelines for what a benchmark should be like. And I think that the gold fix doesn't pass scrutiny in these two areas. Uh, and I think there's some remedial work required. But as far as you're concerned, um, the general mechanism, it's, it's pretty solid gold as far as you're it's, concerned. It, it's as it's, it's good as it can be. Understand that you cannot have riskless trading. It's inherent in every transaction, in every market. It's my view that the mechanism that underpins the gold fix as is even better than most others. The reason for that is because you can change your order during that process. If I put an order through to a broker, if I put an order through to a floor of one of the exchanges... That is privileged information. It's a commitment to trade at that price with somebody. That's, that's information you could usefully use as a trader. With the fix, you cannot because you can cancel at any moment in time. That's if I was buying gold, which unfortunately I'm not in a position to do. <laughs> That's Ross Norman from Sharps Pixley in London. My guests on the programme today are Jeremy Gordon and Ralph Silver. And who better to talk about gold than a man called Silver? Uh, Ralph, how important do you think it is, as Ross said, for the process whereby the price of gold is fixed is not only good, but seen to be good? Well, I think Ross is making it a little more complicated than it has to be. The problem here is a very simple problem, and that's the problem is that the five banks that he listed out there that are fixing this price have a subjective duty to fix the price. But the real problem, the fundamental problem, is that they're trading gold for their clients as well as for themselves. And that's the fundamental problem and why we have to look at this. It would be okay if they were just doing it for their customers. But as long as they put their own gold, their own assets uh, in question as well, then the idea of fixing prices is very appealing to the people within the organization itself. And these five institutions, how, how did they get the job in the first place? Have you any idea? One of them is a Canadian bank, isn't it? The Bank of Nova Scotia. Yeah, it's uh, actually Scotiabank, I believe it is. But uh, it, was, it happened back in 1919. If you, this is a very, very old process. And the reason they set it up was because the gold fixing was just for a select few. But what's happened over the years and why it's no longer fit for purpose is that other institutions are now feeding off of that price. To be honest with you, if only these five institutions traded amongst themselves, I don't think we would be talking about this. But the fact is that everyone else feeds off of this price, and that's where the fundamental problem comes in. Jeremy Gordon, you're, you're an expert on China. And China, I believe, now is the biggest produce, single producer of gold in the world. Yeah, I, I think it became the biggest consumer uh, last year and has been the biggest producer for a while. Yeah, so very important, crucial as far as China is concerned that this is 
uh, seem to be correct? Yeah, I, th- I think on a number of different levels. Um, I mean, you only need to go uh, into a jewellery shop in China to see the uh, the gold price displayed prominently, a bit bit like looking at a ticker in a, in a stock market here. Uh, and of course, it's very popular with Chinese consumers as a as a hedge against financial risk um, in, 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 in terms of how they invest their money. But actually, it's also, um, at the moment, the subject of quite a lot of financial risk itself. Uh, they're, they're investigating in China about $15 billion worth of loans backed by false gold stocks. Um, so, you know, it's a hedge against risk, but also it's creating risk when, it, when it's a non-physical asset. Ralph, say, say there is a reform of, of the system. Is it uh, going to affect you personally? <laughs> no, sadly, my last name is Silva, but not Platinum. I wish it were. No, it's not going to affect it. But the thing is, is that this this is the second time we're talking about this kind of thing, because just a few months ago, we were talking about LIBOR situations yeah. and the fixing of LIBOR. The process by which we're trying to fix LIBOR is going to be the same process by which we're going to fix gold. So sadly, we got to go through the LIBOR process first. And I think this one's going to be going to follow very closely thereafter. OK, Ralph and Jeremy, uh, thanks very much. Uh, Let's move on quickly. They're predicting a marijuana shortage in the U.S. state of Washington, and that's because the state has just decided to follow the lead set earlier by Colorado and legalise the sale of the drug. And we're talking pot for pleasure here, not just for medicinal purposes. Licences are being issued, premises are being readied. Other U.S. states are going to be looking to see what happens next. The BBC's Samira Hussain has been following the story. Some two dozen states here in America sell marijuana for medicinal uses, but now they're going to be setting up shop in the state of Washington to be able to sell it for those who just want to get high. So we're talking about places like Seattle, which is uh, fairly hip and happening, isn't it? Indeed. But, you know, funny enough, when you mention Seattle, you would think it's the big city in Washington state. But they're only allowing one store to sell marijuana there. Um, And that's part of the problem. You know, it's been more than a year and a half since the state has allowed for marijuana to be sold recreationally. But because it's taken so much time for people to actually get licenses and the way that the licenses are being distributed, you have only one store that's being being licensed to sell marijuana in in Seattle, for example. So it's not exactly going to be like Amsterdam then? No, not just yet, because what's happening is that you have individual towns that are fighting against the state rule and saying, well, the federal uh, laws still prohibit the use of marijuana. So they're invoking that to try and prevent from some stores to open up in their particular area or town. Now, Washington, as you say, is the second state to go down this road, the first being Colorado. Presumably lots of people have been looking at Colorado and seeing where that experiment has gone. I mean, what's the what's the verdict on it? So I was actually in Colorado a few months ago when they first started selling recreational marijuana. And Mark, I have to say I was really taken by just how large some of these, uh, f- or um, I guess factories wouldn't be the right word, but these these areas, these warehouses where they had the marijuana that they were selling for both recreational purposes and medicinal purposes. It was really an incredible professional 
operation. Gone are the days where you're sort of going down into the basement and, you know, buying it off of someone that you knew from someone else or that you knew from someone else. Um, And to date, actually, Colorado has collected more than $24 million in marijuana taxes and fees. Now, it is still a little bit less than what they were anticipating, but it's still a significant amount of money to collect within, you know, just half a year. And the state of Washington is expecting to collect about $190 million over the next four years, according to some government projections. Wow, so it's a money spin as well. And as you say, these are not little boutiques then. This is sort of a marijuana Walmart that you've got. Indeed, it is. Different strains of marijuana. And in fact, you know, they've created, uh, you know, this industry that's completely legalized it and therefore there's a lot more jobs um, a lot more um, industry that's happening around this and in fact there's even a job for a marijuana connoisseur someone who can um, taste or sample rather the different strands of marijuana to give um, a rating on them Washington of course was at the uh, forefront of the coffee revolution in uh the United States, wasn't it? This is something completely different, though. Well, there have been some comparisons in terms of the way Starbucks has completely taken over the co- the coffee industry. And some have tried to suggest that perhaps they could do the same for marijuana. That's Samira Hussain. You're listening to Business Matters from the BBC World Service. Uh, Ralph Silver in Toronto. Would the province of Ontario consider following the lead of, uh, of Washington there? Well, they're talking about it, but you got to admit that Washington's going to be the chillest or the coolest place in, in America now. And I think everyone's going to be calling each other dudes and they're going to run out of crisps and popcorn sometime soon. <laughs> the thing is, is this is the this is the state where Microsoft, Boeing and Starbucks exist. So um, it's a very rich state. There's a lot of money to be had there. And honestly, this is one of the, this is a following of what's going on in Colorado. There wasn't that many problems. There really weren't. So I think that they're just saying, well, we can tax this and then we can regulate it. And if we can regulate it, then we can control it. And I think that's probably not a bad thing. So hopefully in Canada, it's coming to a neighbourhood near us in Canada. Are you telling me that Toronto's not hip and cool, despite the fact that you live there? Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're hip and cool for different reasons, because it gets really cold in the winter. OK, Ralph, thanks very much. Uh, you're listening to Business Matters on the BBC World Service. And coming up later on the programme, passion at work. And I don't mean an office romance. Is it passion or just management pie in the sky? To admit in public that you are not passionate about your work is about as shocking as admitting to fiddling your expenses. And as Pink Floyd announced their first album in 20 years, are we about to see a prog rock revival? It's the opposite of what the record business is now, really. I mean, everything is so short and snappy and people have such low attention spans these days that it's a welcome break from the norm to go back to those kind of dates. The Institute for Religious Works, that's the Vatican Bank to thee and me, could be radically cut back in an overhaul that's designed to refocus the bank's role. It's expected to be stripped of its uh, role of managing the church's assets so it can return to its original purpose of sending funds to missionaries and church groups around the world. Well, the bank's suffered its share of scandals, including earlier this year when one of its clerics, Monsignor Nuncio Scarano, was charged with money laundering. So will this finally rid the 127-year-old institution of its shameful reputation? Joining me now from Louisiana is Jason Berry, the Global Post's religion correspondent and author of Render Unto Rome, The Secret Life of Money in the Catholic Church. Welcome to the programme, Jason. 
given what the Bible says about money lending, um, people might be a bit surprised that the Vatican has a bank in the first place, let alone one that has such a, a dubious reputation. Well, <laughs> I'm an investigative reporter and I cannot comment about Scripture, but I, I will say that the history of the bank is a, a fascinating mirror on the evolution of the Vatican itself. And many of the problems uh, to which you've alluded that made headlines uh, in the last year or so are frankly receding now as uh, the first pope from Latin America puts a very strong stamp of his own personality on these changes. Uh, basically, he's doing what he did in Argentina when, as the Cardinal Archbishop Bergoglio, he inherited a huge financial mess uh, from one of his predecessors and uh, dramatically stripped down uh, the institution uh, under his uh, aegis, you might say. Yeah, I was going to ask you why it's happening now, because the sort of murky reputation goes back a, a long way. I'm, I, I haven't studied the, the Vatican Bank, but I, I do remember that chap, or was it Roberto Calvi, God's <laughs> banker, found hanging under Blackfriars Bridge. I mean, that's all the hallmarks of the mafia, etc. I mean, why is it being changed now? Is it because we've got a new pope? Oh, it's absolutely uh, because we have a new pope. Uh, Benedict XVI was engulfed in scandals involving money and an almost open revolt within the Roman Curia. I mean, the big story, Mark, that no one has gotten yet is how much of the Vatty Leaks scandal that we were all so riveted by, you know, a year and a half ago, really stemmed, or did it stem, from people who wanted uh, greater access to these money laundering accounts in the IOR, uh, the Vatican Bank. Mm -hmm. What's happened now in the last year is that they've, with a lot of help from consultants, including a Wall Street uh, firm, Promontory, that specializes in scrubbing toxic assets, what, what they're doing is shrinking the scope of the bank's lending power. And as we see today from the reports in the Financial Times and Reuters, um, it is going to be a smaller bank, much more focused uh, on the the needs and uh, the financial services of religious orders themselves. But are we really going to see a bank that purely looks after missionaries? Well, that's a very intelligent question. Um, you know, Bruhlhard, Rene Bruhlhard, uh, who has overseen this process, uh, has really done what very few people uh, have been able to do over the long haul, he has literally reduced the size of the bank. The one thing we don't read about much is who is being fired, where are they going, how are they being let go. I mean, there's a lot of discretion that's going on, if you will, behind the curtain here. But with an announcement like this, uh, obviously the Vatican feels confident that it has the bank uh, coming under control. Will they be fired or will they be shuffled off somewhere else? Well, I wish I could answer that for you. Uh, <laughs> I, look, most bureaucracies, whether in uh, democratic or non-democratic countries, whether the press is free or somewhat controlled, prefer to get rid of people without prosecutions. It's the nature of government. Jason Berry, thank you very much indeed. That's uh, Jason Berry, the global post-religion correspondent and author of the book Render Unto Rome, The Secret Life of Money in the Catholic Church. Ralph Silva, I believe that you used to work uh, in Rome, is that correct? 
Yes, I, I, I have done some contract work um, for the Vatican Bank. And um, what's going on here really is that they're changing their focus and they're changing their focus away from investments to just the payments business. And, and just to uh, just sort of give you an idea of scale, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has 412,000 priests that have to be paid every month, along with nuns and brothers and a lot of other clergy. Just the amount of money that has to flow just because of the size of the church is enormous. So the Vatican Bank still has a purpose in that area. But in terms of investment, there's a lot of organizations out there that can do it just as ethically or more ethically, if you want to argue that, uh, and do it a lot cheaper than they can. So they're just going to put their money in other big banks. So what exactly is it that the the, the church is going to be divesting itself of then, do you think? The, The decisions on what they buy and they sell for investment purposes, not the money moving around the churches itself around the world. It's just where, what do I buy? Like how many shares of this do I buy and how many shares of this do I sell? Those decisions, which is where the money laundering was supposedly taking place, that's going to be given to a professional organization, most likely a bank. We don't know who yet. And they're going to manage it in a professional way like they would your money or my money. And do you know how much the Roman Catholic Church is actually worth? No, no, they would no. Honestly, I don't think anyone really knows. Remember that some of the accounts, some of the deposit accounts there are over 400 years old. This is the either the oldest or the second oldest bank in the world as well. And some of the deposits go back that long. So there's still a lot of question as to exactly what's under control and what's not under control. So we don't know and we probably never will know. Ralph, thanks very much. We'll hear more from Ralph Silver in the second half of the programme and also from Jeremy Gordon, who's from China Business Services. He's going to be telling us about his book, which is about a risky business in China. You're listening to uh, Business Matters from the BBC World Service. Stay tuned if you can. And welcome back to Business Matters with me, Mark Whitaker. My guests on the programme today are Ralph Silver from the Silver Research Network in Toronto. And here in the studio in London is Jeremy Gordon from China Business Studies. And Jeremy is the author of a book called Risky Business in China. Jeremy, what's the book about? Thanks very much. Yeah, Risky Business in China is basically um, uh, a guide to due diligence and an explanation of the changing nature of risk that international businesses face in China. So I've been working in China for over the last 20 years, and I've seen some pretty fundamental shifts uh, in the type of business that people are doing in China and the way in which people are doing business in China. What what sort of changes? Well, when I was uh, starting to work in China in the early 90s, um, all the international business focus was on uh, market entry for manufacture, for selling product uh, that was made in China into international markets. Of course, what we've had in more recent times is a rebalancing of the Chinese economy away from investment-driven growth and away from uh, uh, manufacturing towards uh, consumption as a driver for growth. 
and, and businesses are having to adapt to those changes. And what, what sort of challenges is that throwing up? Well, a lot of the challenges that people see in China are actually the same that businesses face anywhere in the world. I mean, risk is an inherent part of business. You can't get away from it. So whether, whether you're uh, looking at uh, cor corruption in China or anywhere else in the world or fraud, um, uh, financial crime, these things happen all over the world. The problem with China is that its scale is so massive uh, and there's such a, um, uh, a concentration of supply chain in, in the manufacturing chain and increasingly a reliance on China um, in international business for future growth. So international businesses increasingly find themselves between a rock and a hard place because China is in control of the supply chain and also represents the future market. Mm -hmm. And so companies have to be very careful how they navigate what is in increasingly a difficult market because of rising costs, increased competition, and for foreign investors, much greater uh, scrutiny by the government, particularly in the context of this uh, ongoing anti-corruption campaign. And your book is called Risky Business. Is, is doing bis business in China unduly risky? No, I, d I don't think it is. But I think a lot of people get very overexcited about the opportunity in China, uh, and in many cases are pressured by corporate structures, uh, the way in which they're remunerated, uh, the way in which targets are set to take unnecessary risks. And so while I mentioned that these risks are common around the world, the way in which you deal with them might be different in different markets. And that's for all sorts of reasons, the cultural reasons in, in, in China, you talk about face and guanxi. It might be the impact of uh, the rule of law and how much reliance uh, you can put on that. It might be due to the role of policy and regulation, which is absolutely critical in China, but it works differently than it does in other markets. Mm -hmm. So you have to adapt your risk management model to suit the market in which you're working. And what are the main ways in which people get their fingers burned, perhaps? Well, I think there, there are some pretty high-profile cases um, that you can read in the news almost on a day-by-day -day basis. Um, I suppose one of the key ones that we've been looking at recently is the GSK case. So <clears throat> this is a sort of case in point where uh, an overarching government policy to reform the healthcare sector in China, which faces similar challenges to other healthcare um, uh, markets, uh, they're trying to reduce costs uh, and at the same time they have an anti-corruption campaign. Uh, everyone in China knows that the healthcare sector has been uh, corrupt uh, since the year dot, uh, so it's an obvious place to go after. But where you have uh, big foreign companies with very deep pockets that have been quite successful in what is a strategic uh, and sensitive industry for the economy, uh, where the government would like domestic champions to come up and compete... Um, when you're selecting which companies you're going to go after in terms of the anti-corruption drive, the, 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 there's an expression in China which is to um, kill the chicken to scare the monkeys. So you, you go after perhaps one of the big foreign firms and put other people on notice, domestic and foreign, that this is no longer going to be an acceptable way to, to, to operate in the sector. So how do companies from the outside world deal with that level of corruption? Well, I... I in, in many ways, you, you don't have to deal with corruption. You know, you, you can take a position um, not to be corrupt. And while there are elements... Does your the, book advise that? Well, it, it certainly does, because if, if you're going to go down that route, 
you will end up uh, being prosecuted, you will end up in prison, you will end up with uh, not only the Chinese authorities, but the uh, serious fraud office, you'll have the FCPA from the US coming after you. So people are starting to reassess how they manage their risk in China. And, you know, a, a bit like the Vatican story, reassess how they manage their corporate governance. Um, how is it that you can root out corruption and bribery in your operations? Mm -hmm. And some of that is done through uh, setting your strategy and, and your rewards in the right way. And some of it is about managing your operations in the right way, using due diligence, using controls on the ground. So presumably this amounts to having the same standards in China as you would have anywhere else in the world. I mean, do things by the book. Basically. Well, I think increasingly, you know, for, for globally operating companies... You're, you're held to that standard all around the world, so you can't differ in the way that you operate. Ralph Silver, what, what do you think of yeah. what, uh, what, what uh, Jeremy's saying? Uh, I'm going to tell Jeremy that I'm certainly going to read his book because I think a lot of those things make a tremendous amount of sense. But my experience with outside world uh, companies when they deal with China, uh, they miss pretty well on every occasion um, the time expectations. They all have expectations for profit quite clearly. They sort of mitigate against a lot of the risks. But in every example that I've ever seen, they've expected to get returns in one or two years and they end up getting returns in five to ten years. And I think that moving into an to a country like that, that is probably the biggest problem is that people aren't getting the returns they expect in the timeframes they expect. And then they start looking for reasons why. And they, of course, they focus on corruption and things of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. I think people do often have unrealistic expectations. And that's often the fault of head office. But it's also sometimes due to the lack of really good market research that people do. And actually, in my view, your market research is your first bit of due diligence. Um, there's actually another book that's come out recently called Myth Busting China's Numbers, which points to the fact that, for example, the, the official retail statistics may have been as much as 50% off the real number. So if you're targeted against a number which is out by that magnitude, of course, you're never going to reach your targets. And there's um, a built-in incentive for you to try and achieve those targets at all costs. Uh, and one of the things I'm saying in the book is that people have to be rewarded not only for achieving uh, deals and getting things done. Sometimes people have to be rewarded for taking a step back and saying, actually, maybe this isn't the way for us to go forward. Maybe this isn't the market for us. So sometimes people have to opt out. Um, and in other ways, people have to be more realistic about how they set their targets. Well, the book is called Risky Business in China. Is that right? That's correct. And it's still in the shops? It's coming out in September. It's coming out it's in September. It's available on Amazon now. Hot off the press. Great. That's excellent. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Now, if you skip through the job ads near the back of most newspapers, you'll find an awful lot of passion there. Here are some adverts I found. If you are passionate about fundraising, says one advert. Passionate about innovative cash flow solutions and spot factoring, says another. Yeah, believe it or not. We are currently recruiting an enthusiastic and passionate sales manager to take our driven sales team to new heights. Blimey, with so much passion on display, you'd think you'd gone to the wrong page and were reading the personal ads, not the situations vacant. And, of course, it's the mantra of all modern-day careers advisors. Find something you're passionate about, then find a way to turn it into a living. But is such workplace passion overrated? I know the answer already, but here's Lucy Kellaway and what she thinks.
The other day I gave a talk to about 80 middle-aged, mainly male, tax experts. I asked them to put up their hands if they considered themselves to be passionate about their work. About half of them stuck their arms in the air at once and the rest, seeing which way the mood was going, hastily put theirs up too. Their response didn't surprise me in the least. The passion fashion, which I first wrote about nearly 20 years ago, has now got to such a point that to admit in public that you are not passionate about your work is about as shocking as admitting to fiddling your expenses. If you type passion into the jobs website Glassdoor, the search returns 105,000 jobs that require it. But try for conscientious surely a much more valuable attribute for any job at all, and you get a mere 2,823. I announced to my tax fanatics that I feel no passion for my work at all. I explained that I like my job, I'm lucky to have it, I care about it, but I'm not passionate about it. I pointed out that the word passion properly refers either to a strong sexual attraction or to the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross neither of which are terribly appropriate in an office setting. Then I asked for a second show of hands. This time, almost all decided that they weren't so passionate about tax matters after all. At the time, I took this as evidence of what I'd always assumed to be true, that the passion fashion was just another tiresome example of language inflation. It's brainless and bogus, but they're just words. The next day in the office, I came upon a piece of research that makes me think I've got it wrong. The insistence on passionate work is about more than words, and it's a lot more worrying. It showed that when an employee bursts into tears at work, fellow workers disapprove, unless the worker explains that the tears resulted from their passion for the job. In that case, they were seen as a dedicated high achiever. But when they said that their weeping was due to personal reasons, they were merely seen as a sap. This is all really disturbing. If ever I see anyone crying at work because, say, their marriage is breaking up, then I view that as entirely understandable. But if they're crying because their presentation went badly and they felt passionate about it, then I want to tell them to get a grip. The answer may lie with a distinction made by Robert Valorand, a Canadian psychology professor. According to him, passion comes in two varieties, obsessive and harmonious. The first is a very bad thing and is where people work in an uncontrolled, compulsive way where everything else in their lives becomes dull and unimportant. By contrast, those who feel harmonious passion towards their work enjoy their jobs and are in control of how much work they do and don't let it annihilate the rest of their lives. All workers should hope to feel this way about their jobs and all employers should hope to hire people who do. However, this isn't passion. It's called liking and caring about your job. It's nice work if you can get it, but it ought not to make you cry. This is Lucy Kellaway for the BBC World Service. My guests on Business Matters today are Jeremy Gordon from China Business Services and Ralph Silver from the Silver Research Network. Two very passionate fellows. The question is, though, what are they passionate about? Ralph, are you passionate about your job? Uh, it's, you know, there's certain parts of my job. I don't think you can look at a job as a holistic type of thing. There's certain things I like. I like doing a show like this with you, Mark, but I don't like doing my taxes. So there's certain <laughs> parts I do like and certain parts I don't. But you got to realize that I came up an investment banker. And I have to tell you, I, I was never really passionate about being an investment banker. I was passionate about what being an investment banker gave me. 
great lunches, great parties, yeah. you know, great lifestyle. It was never the job or what the job gave me. And of course, now I'm completely embarrassed that I was an investment banker. So please, no hate mail. And, uh, you know, it's but the just point about, is, it was a means to an end, in other words. Exactly. It's I like to eat. I, I really like to eat. So it's like you need to bring in some money to do that. And I didn't hate it. But I wouldn't say that I was totally passionate about it. I don't think that would be realistic. Yeah. Jeremy, what about you? Well, I, I think I definitely admit to being passionate about Chinese food, uh, which is a large <laughs> part of what I what I do when I'm working. Uh, obviously, I'm passionate about my book. Did I mention that? Um, <laughs> Just a couple but, of times. But, but I think that, um, you know, again, it comes down to definitions. You know, you've got to have energy and interest. Uh, otherwise, you know, why, why bother? The key is, I think, isn't it, that you... To have passion about your job, you've got to have actually chosen it. I mean, if you're a sportsman or if you play in a, a rock band or maybe you always wanted to build your own boat and now finally you're doing it, those are things you could be passionate about. But if you just drift into jobs because you have to earn a living and that's what most people do, I mean, where's the passion in that? Ralph? Uh, there is really no passion. And, and I think your point's well taken is that you take the next opportunity and you look at it as just the next opportunity. You rarely look at it from a holistic point of view. How is this going to affect my life in 50 years? You don't really think about that. Somebody's adding, you know, 20% to your salary, you know, especially when you're young, you just think, oh, absolutely. Let me take it right now. You're not thinking about in 50 years, I'm going to regret that or I'm not going to love it. So you end up getting pulled into it. It's like the old adage. It's just when you think you got out, they pull you, they drag you back in. That's kind of what happens is that you get dragged back into something you may not love because it's 20% more salary than you did just the day before. Yeah, so all this guff about being passionate about innovative cash flow solutions and spot factoring and that kind of thing, I mean, that is, it's, it's patronising, isn't it? It certainly is. And, you know, after this banking crisis of 2008, I've noticed that my colleagues that still work in investment banks, now they're going into pubs and they're talking to, they're chatting up the girls and they're saying that they're accountants. That's what they're passionate about because they're embarrassed about being passionate about those other types of professions. So it's a means to an end. Don't you be embarrassed. It's okay. You're among <laughs> friends. Ralph, thanks a lot. Let's get a recap of the headlines now with Marion Marshall. Israel has carried out more airstrikes against targets in Gaza in retaliation for rocket attacks by the Palestinian militant group Hamas. Vatican officials say the Roman Catholic Church is to announce sweeping reforms of its scandal-tainted bank, ending all its investment activities. The Afghan Electoral Commission has released preliminary results for the contested presidential runoff. The director of a firm linked to football's governing body has been arrested in connection with the illegal sale of thousands of World Cup tickets. In Tokyo, the Nikkei 225 index opened for business 45 minutes ago, and right now it's down 0.6 of a percentage point at 15,273.37. And on the currency markets, one US dollar will buy you 101.7 Japanese yen. Marion, you read those figures with a lot of passion. Are you passionate about your job? Oh, I, I'm passionate about this building. I love being here. Lovely. There you go. Someone is really contented. Marion Marshall there with the news. Now, our India reporter today on Business Matters is the BBC's Raul Tandon. He's in Calcutta. Raul, um, welcome to the programme, as ever. Um, tell us what, uh, what's, what's news. India's largest telecoms company is cutting its workforce. Uh, why is that? Yeah, I don't think workers at Reliance Communications are going to be passionate about their company this morning because 37% of them are going to lose their jobs. And it's interesting, this story, because we hear a lot about, in the, over the last decade, I suppose, people outsourcing jobs to India. Well, Reliance Communication, which lost 2 million subscribers uh, at the last set of Indian mobile phone figures, are going to outsource those jobs somewhere else. So, you know, as you said there, when you drift into a job or drift out of one, 
that passion, I'm sure, disappears. Yeah. Um, so, um, how many how, how many workers did you say are going to go? It's thirty-seven percent. So it looks like about fourteen, fifteen, you know, thousand could actually Lovely. go from them. They're owned by the Ambani's, who are one of the richest. Well, they are the richest family here in India. It's owned by the younger brother, who seen not to be so good at business as his elder brother. Sounds noisy in Calcutta as usual. Um, and people in Calcutta, they're missing their favourite fish. I'm not sure what the favourite fish in Calcutta is, but you tell us about it. Wow, well, that's, a dog, that's a dog and a half, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> He's missing not his favourite fish, but sometimes I have to move a little bit away from him, to be perfectly honest, because he seems to be quite passionate about my leg at the moment. Damn boy. Um, as, <laughs> damn boy, indeed. Yeah, I mean, as, as we heard from your guest there, food is very important in most people's lives. So if you want something in business, you know, you've got to use what you know other people like a lot sometimes to get it. Now, the Bangladeshis are very annoyed with the Indians at the moment over a dispute over water. So what they've said is, if you don't let us have enough water from the Tista River to the people of West Bengal, we're not going to allow you to have your favourite fish, which is the hillshire fish. It's a bit like the salmon. It's very, very bony. People go absolutely crazy for it. Mark, I'm from North India. At North Indian weddings, we have fights over alcohol, to be perfectly honest with you, and I'm often at the front of the queue there. The Bengalis are slightly different. They, I've seen it. They have huge fights over getting the best bit of the hillshire fish at a wedding. So the good thing is we, we have no violence in Calcutta at the moment because they can't get hold of any. Well, I think you should trade some alcohol for some fish then there. And what's this about the Spanish moving into uh, Indian football? Well, they had a disastrous World Cup, didn't they? So probably they're, they're, they're trying hiding, to resurrect They're hiding it. in Calcutta now. They <laughs> come to hide in Calcutta. Maybe the English should come as, yeah. as well over here. Yeah, the, football is growing incredibly here. So I, I a little bit walked down the street and my friendly dog has now disappeared. You know, you can see huge Argentinian and Brazilian fans decked across Calcutta. This is a city crazy for football. They're launching a new football league in Atletico Madrid. Well, they've teamed up with some fairly famous uh, Indians, Saurabh Ganguly, the former Indian cricket captain, and they've launched a new football team, Atletico de Madrid. And the word is they're not going to be the first to do this. Looks like Manchester United, Liverpool, a host of other big European clubs are looking at following them into the Indian market. Forget cricket if you want to come to India. It's all about football now. I was going to say, it's about time football took off in India, isn't it? Well, I, mean, I know that this is an issue close to your heart because I believe that uh, some Indians have been closely involved with yes, your, they, your football they have, club. They sort of came close to wrecking it. But, but yes, that's <laughs> private grief, isn't it? Uh, yes, the, um, the Venkis. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, maybe maybe Blackburn could get revenge. No, I, I think it is, you know, 1.4 billion people. Even if 90, you know, even if only 20% like football, that's still a staggering number of people. So, yeah, I, I think it's a grey market here. And football is cool amongst the, uh, the new young, amongst young kids. Now cricket's a bit passe. Well, the Venkis may be turning Blackburn round now, actually. I'm going to give them a, another season and see what happens. But, Raul, stay with us if you can and if that dog will allow you because we have an item which might be right up your street or then again. Again, might not. You're listening to Business Matters. In their pomp, they were one of the most commercially successful bands in the world, producing a kind of music that few people these days would consider remotely commercial. Pink Floyd with a prog rock band par excellence, selling hundreds of millions of copies of albums such as Dark Side of the Moon, Medal, Omagama, and Wish You Were Here. Well, it's 20 years now since they last had an album, but it's just been announced that a new Pink Floyd album is due to be released in October, called Endless River, based on sessions that were recorded back in 1994. The question is, do Pink Floyd still cut it 
with a new post-prog rock generation of music lovers. Casey Rain is lead singer with a band called Swami. What's his reaction, if any, to the Pink Floyd news? Like most people, um, shock, basically. <laughs> it's very unexpected, came out of nowhere, so very pleased to hear it, though. A nice shock, as far as you're concerned. Then. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan, but I do like a lot of their stuff. It's funny, because I got more into some of their stuff in the last kind of couple of years, really. Like, obviously, I've been familiar with their bigger stuff for a long time, but recently I got into their really early stuff, like the Sid Barrett stuff. Arnold, yeah, Arnold kind of Lane really and all that kind of stuff. And... Exactly, and see Emily play and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Do you mind me asking how old you are? I am 26. 26. So you're not the Pink Floyd generation. No, I guess not. <laughs> but that's but the funny thing is, I uh, I know a lot of people my age that are into them. Pink Floyd sold something like 250 million copies of albums such as Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here and that kind of thing gold-plated. I mean, do you think this will be a similar success? Well, I mean, the record business is definitely not what it used to be but I think, you know, the interest is there. If it's something that stands up the rest of their catalogue, then I don't see why it can't be very successful. And to anyone who's not heard Pink Floyd, why would you recommend them? I think they're the kings of psychedelic rock, really. Um, and the kings of the concept album on top of that. So if you're somebody that's into um, cohesive records that have themes and consistency and tell a story and like a bit of psychedelia as well, then Floyd is the band for you. Well, I can actually remember a time when everybody was into concept albums and you'd listen well, to yeah. tracks that went on for 30 minutes. Do you, think, <laughs> do you think people have got that endurance these days? Well, it's the opposite of what the record business is now, really. I mean, everything is so short and snappy and people have such low attention spans these days that I think it's a welcome break from the norm to go back to those kind of dates. That's Shine On You Crazy Diamond by Pink Floyd. OK, you know what I'm going to ask you all. Um, Ralph Silver, Jeremy Gordon and Rahul Tandon. Ralph Silver, first of all, um, Pink Floyd fan? Uh, I, I certainly am. I grew up on Dark Side of the Moon and uh, my anthem was We Don't Need No Education. So those are really, really powerful to me. And to be honest with you, though, and Mark, you're probably in the same school I'm, I'm here. But when we were growing up, these guys were already old. So I think they should rename themselves from Pink Floyd to Geriatrics Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, what, what, what's your, you're, yeah, a lot, you're a lot younger than that. I the, mean, the memories uh, come back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I also have a vision of Good uh, Patsy Power Station with, yeah. uh, with a pig flying over. For it so uh, you know yeah blast from yeah. i'll be buying the new album so you will yeah definitely good right and what about you Raul? Yeah, yeah, I love that. You know, Calcutta's great because uh, they're still obsessed with Pink Floyd. And every year they have a whole series of concerts across the city where you have all these sort of bands imitate it. Even my little boy, he likes Pink Floyd because every time we have to choose a song in the car, we take turns on the iPod. He chooses a Pink Floyd one because it goes on forever and ever and ever, he says. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the, what is the uh, enduring appeal, do you think? Because that kind of music was of, a, of an age, you would have thought, wasn't it? I remember... Back in the 70s, every album was a sort of concept album and every track went on for at least 14 minutes. Um, those days have gone, Ralph. 
Well, uh, but have they? I think they've gone for a certain generation, but for us older gentlemen, shall we say, uh, I don't think it has. It is gone. I think retro is back. It's cool to bring back that old stuff. I'm watching people on the street now riding old, old, old bikes and dressing in old suits and things. I think retro's back, and this is sort of part of our youth. And I think bringing it back is kind of fun. But I don't know if it's going to last forever. But I think for the next few years, we're going to get a lot of these bands coming out with new albums. Yeah, Jeremy, how old were you when uh, the last Pink Floyd album? came out in pro- uh, yeah a lot younger than I am now <laughs> <laughs> 20 years younger than you are now he's not yeah. giving any secrets away uh, Rahul and, and your kid what, what, why does, what does he explain to you why, why he likes Pink Floyd it's different, he says. It's very different to, to a lot of the other sort of stuff that he listens to. You know, interestingly, there were, he was chatting to some of his friends about the new Pink Floyd album coming out, and they're all, you know, quite excited about it because it's something that they've grown up with because you hear still so much of it here in Calcutta. So, yeah, I mean, Hang he's going to look forward to it. Your little lad had got the news before we had. <laughs> yeah, I, they, they live in a different world, to be honest with you. What I would do next week, if you, you know, you need an Asia report, I'd get him on instead of me. <laughs> you, you, he seems to be far more across stuff than I am. <laughs> you bring him on, Raul. Raul, it's a pleasure to talk to you. That's Raul Tandon in Calcutta. Uh, we've also had Jeremy Gordon uh, in London, and the, the, the title of your new book, which is just going out, Jeremy, is what? Risky Business in China. Risky Business in China. And Ralph Silver, as ever, from the Silver Research Network in Toronto. Thanks to you as well. Let's hear Shine On You Crazy Diamond for all you crazy diamonds. Take care. You've been listening to Business Matters. Bye-bye. <laughs> you shine like the sun. There are dozens of different podcasts now available from the BBC, including news, documentaries, science, business, arts and sport. For details of them all, go to bbcworldservice.com slash podcasts.